0: It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, OKAY, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan, joined by Deirdre Bosa. She's the host of CNBC's Heck, check. Debo, welcome back to the pod.
1: Hello, I've got Carl the Fog behind me. It is extremely, extremely foggy in San Francisco. I can't even see out the windows.
0: You know what's crazy is like I usually, when you pop on on a Tuesday, it's just this beautiful view of the Bay Bridge, but there is none of that. But listen, you and I have a ton to get to today. Before I kind of give us a little bit of the rundown, I want to encourage all of our listeners to stick around for a conversation that I had with my very good friend, Joe Marchese. He is the Build Part partner over there at Human Ventures, and also my new friend, Dr. Marcus Collins. He is a marketing professor at Michigan University. He is the author of the book, For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. That's a great book, and we're going to do a giveaway. You guys know the deal. If you want that book, give us a review in your favorite podcast store. Take a screenshot. Email it to contact at riskreversal.com, and Amanda is going to send you a book. We appreciate that you and i have a ton to get through this was not on the rundown but we're going to talk about rom commerce i know that's something that you're going to get really focused on in the coming holiday season uber rom commerce Commerce. that is
1: the First time I've heard of that. Okay,
0: and I'm going to get your take on all that. We're going to talk about Uber's inclusion to the S&P 500 as it's nearing its all-time high. AI hallucinations, more of those. That's out of Amazon and some pushouts of some products. EV woes heading into 2024. It's been an interesting year there. And Apple getting back to its all-time highs. There's some talk about a smartphone reacceleration and then some services growth that could be on the back of AI. That's at least what Morgan Stanley's saying. And then lastly, the IPO class of 2024. I know you're excited to talk about that. All right, let's talk about, Ron. Plus
1: senior citizens,
0: right? Y- yes, I think that you saw exactly what I was reading from the information. It was interesting. Last week, you and I spent a couple minutes talking about Amazon Prime's NFL Black Friday. And we both agreed that we thought it was really interesting, some of the product integration that they were doing, at least on the ads and and really kind of getting people's attention on Black Friday, which is really morphed into Cyber Monday. And we all love football at home for free. And we all love shopping on our phones while we're watching football. And we thought that was kind of interesting. So Walmart is introducing this series that's going to be on YouTube. It's going to be on TikTok. It's going to be on Roku. It's called Add to Heart. It's a rom comedy and it's really just built around product product placement of Walmart things and you can buy it right on there and listen it looks cheesy as you know what but if you are into that sort of content and you're into that sort of shopping and they created something that maybe gets you doing both at the same time kind of interesting seems like a bit of an extension of what we talked about last week thoughts
1: So. Walmart has been able to essentially compete with Amazon because it sort of copied the playbook, right? If you want to be an e-commerce company in this day and age, you have to be more than e-commerce. You have to create a flywheel that feeds each other. So selling stuff online is just part of it, right? You have, what's it called? Walmart... Plus, is that what they call it, Dan? Their prime system, Amazon Prime, obviously, that gives you more than just that two day shipping or delivery, right? It gives you something to stay for. You go to shopping and you stay to watch NFL football, or apparently you stay now to watch a rom com. I'm curious as to how it does, because, you know, there's nothing I hate more than being fed products through my content. But there is an audience for that. I think that's why the Hallmark Channel exists. So Walmart doing it is a really smart move. And it too reminds me that everything, you know, is ultimately an advertising or a media business and tech companies and the retail companies that are smart buy into that or maybe not just smart, but have the capital to do so And Walmart you know, being the biggest retailer in the country with a grocery business, et cetera, is not a good position to do so. Remember too, when they were thinking about buying TikTok, that was another similar move and that going outside of its core to do something that would capture a different audience or keep demographics inside of the Walmart ecosystem.
0: Yeah, and as far as product placement's concerned, I think you make a good point. I mean, no one likes to be like subliminally like kind of fed these sorts of things, but you know exactly what you're getting. And then on the flip side of that, you could say that a lot of what goes on on Instagram right now I know a lot of people, you and I have talked about this in the past, are kind of really happy about the ads that they get placed from a commerce standpoint. Like they're doing a really good job in that regard. So I agree. A lot of these businesses that you've been Following for years and years and years, they have had these stealthy advertising businesses that have been growing. We've been talking about it with Uber, you know, over the course of the last year. Obviously, for Amazon, this has been a great margin business for them too, as it's gotten over, yeah, I think it's, you know, more than six or seven billion dollars a quarter right now. I think they're doing over 30 billion dollars maybe a year. So, again, I just thought that was kind of interesting to highlight, especially as what we talked about it last year. What did you call it, ROM? e-commerce? The name is good. It says, you know, the tagline is not a rom-com, it's rom-commerce. Again, you know exactly what you're getting there. And I just find it interesting as all these models sort of evolve. And, you know, the one thing I'd say about Amazon, for instance, as they get more in the content business, we're seeing more and more product placement there. If you ever watch a show on Apple TV Plus or whatever, all you do is see, you know, Apple devices all over the place. It looks like you're on one of the coasts here in America. I, I, I wonder how those things play in other demos. Where Android is far more prevalent, but who knows? Let's talk a little bit about Apple for a second here, because it's kind of interesting. You know, over the last few days, Barrons gave AI the cover treatment. I'm sure you caught that a little bit. It was about the AI gold rush, and NVIDIA is still cheap, and Microsoft still got more to go, and, and there was a whole host of that sort of stuff. But Apple has quietly moved back towards its prior highs here. And what's interesting to me about this, and you and I again have spent a lot of time over the course of this year, they don't have Have any AI products, right? They're not like touting anything real big. And so part of the story right now is that, okay, smartphones have been, you know, decelerating, right? And so if they don't continue to grow their installed base, you're going to have weakness as it relates to services growth. And then we also know some of the challenges that they have in China. And I just think this is interesting. This is from former Morgan Stanley Apple analyst, who now is their head of research. This is Katie Huberty. And she said the smartphone industry is poised for recovery that is not yet priced into shares. This is important mark. The firm's global tech team has received a very significant amount of feedback that future growth tied to edge AI or where artificial intelligence runs on users' devices is creating investment opportunities that the industry sits on what she called a favorable inflection point. And I just want to make this last point before I get your take on this. We were talking about the AI treatment for some of the biggest names in the public markets that we know have been benefiting, right, from investor excitement in and around this secular shift, okay? We were talking about last night on Fast Money. And my point was, that I think some of the biggest beneficiaries in 2024 are gonna be companies like Apple or like Amazon that have not introduced products, but they're gonna see it Flowing throughout their existing offerings, right, and the investments that they made. So, curious is your thoughts on that? Because this year seemed like almost the low-hanging fruit. If you're looking at Nvidia, right, so the provider of the GPUs, and next year it might really be these big platform companies or these hyperscalers, as you've talked about many times this year, are going to be huge beneficiaries for a whole host of reasons.
1: I think the idea of Apple and what it's doing in artificial intelligence is one of the biggest question marks, but also potentially one of the most interesting stories of 2024. You're right; it doesn't have any generative AI products right now, and it's not even mentioned in the same conversation as Microsoft, Google, and Amazon, and NVIDIA, right? It's just not even mentioned. And I go back to earlier this year when I was out in Cupertino at one of these Apple events, and instead of saying artificial intelligence, Tim Cook kept saying machine learning, and it almost felt like he was trying to avoid the buzz of that word. And I think that's what Apple does so well. It takes its time. may not have any products right now, but do I think that it's working on some of the most exciting generative AI projects. Yes, that is not a doubt in my mind. And there's such an interesting contrast between an Apple and an Amazon. Amazon is falling all over itself this year to talk about generative AI every chance. It gets. It's like the stark opposite of Apple that doesn't want to mention the hype machine by name. Amazon is just all in. And It was remarkable. AWS, was it last week? I mean, they trotted out Jensen Huang of NVIDIA. And not only that, but they slammed Microsoft every chance they could get. And I remember, I can't remember who put out this note. It was Bernstein or Bank of America, where they said, this is what last place looks like. And I thought that was just such a harsh indictment of Amazon's strategy. It's so desperate to be seen on Wall Street as part of this generative AI conversation that it's working the other way. That Wall Street is actually thinking, okay, if you got to try this hard, maybe you really are in last place and you're making up for too much. So I think those are like very, very different positions. The less we hear from Apple doesn't make me think that they're doing less. It just makes me think that maybe they're more confident in what they're doing. There's more to hear from them next year.
0: The thing with Amazon that sticks out to me is like, so we've been talking about the deceleration in AWS, right? So increased you know, generative AI tools that they can actually resell or, or folks are using to kind to train their own models, right? To kind of integrate into their own products on AWS is really important. And we know that Microsoft right now, given the relationship with OpenAI, has gotten the benefit of that, right, with Azure. And so when you think about that's where this battle is being fought, I do think it's interesting that Jensen Wang, you know, showed up there because again, Nvidia is their largest customer is Microsoft right now, right? So you think about Microsoft and Meta make up 30% of Nvidia's revenues, throw in Amazon and Alphabet, you get another 12% or so, a little north of 40. And when you think about Microsoft, again, you know, as their largest customer, every day you and I read a new story about how Microsoft is is working very hard to create their own chips, right? So ultimately, NVIDIA has to solve for their largest customers, this customer concentration that they have ultimately going away. And the more that your customers are going to be competing with you, right, it does lend itself to the idea that there's going to be some margin pressure, especially as some of your competitors, AMD, Intel, are going to be getting into the GPU game in the not so distant future and they're going to have to compete on price. And that kind of leads me to this whole notion of, okay, well, NVIDIA's been going sideways since that May you know quarter that they reported that huge beat and raise. It's been trading between $400 and $500. Right now, as we're recording, it's at $460. And a lot of folks who had been making the argument that this stock was going to grow into its valuation, they are correct at the moment. Right now, it is trading on next year's expected earnings, 22 times earnings and about 12 times sales, which really seems... Seems reasonable, and one point D I want to make is that you know analysts or consensus were slow, right, to ratchet up their numbers for the out year, and that's why it looked expensive, right? But they're going to also likely be slow to kind of cut them as we get into 2024. If you just think about it that way, and it could start looking expensive again. And I just want to kind of make that point because you know just as one thing goes the one way, it has the opposite. You know, it has the potential to go the other way too, and that's what I think is one of the reasons why NVIDIA is really going sideways for the last four months as it's kind of grown into this valuation.
1: There's another side to this that I don't hear mentioned very often. Um, and this was brought up by the CEO of Databricks, right? Who has a really good view and he's always very candid, Ali Godsey, um, about the space. And he's acquired a generative AI company this year. This almost feels like a dirty word at this point, glut. That next year we could actually see this GPU glut. We've heard from Chinese companies. We've heard from American companies that have been stuck. Lockpiling. And you just mentioned the competition that's coming online from a and the other big mega caps. Even if you don't think that they're going to be able to really make a dent in NVIDIA's dominance, because NVIDIA's dominance relies more on the GPU, it's the ecosystem that it's created. If there is, in fact, a glut, maybe the AI hype cycle comes down a little bit, or everyone has all the GPUs that they need and they can use the Amazon and the Microsoft chips that they're developing, or, or we move into a different phase of AI, right, which is more inference, which requires less compute power, that could be... Something to consider for Nvidia's valuation.
0: As you talk about glut, okay, and this just kind of leads me to EVs. There was a a couple interesting reports out over the last week or so. Obviously, there was a lot of focus on this Cybertruck event that happened in Austin at um, you know Tesla's uh, factory down there. I think they delivered maybe twelve of these Cybertrucks, and you know it's kind of interesting. It seemed like it dropped like a lead balloon a little bit, meaning like yes, the true faithful who've been on the waiting list and love everything that you know Tesla produces, they seemed really excited about it. I guess there was no press there and it was just a small group of sort of like, you know, fanboys, if you will. But this is not a particularly practical product. There was a lot of talk about the pricing where it came in higher, the specs lower, kind of disappointing. But we all know the path for Tesla going forward to justify its $700 billion market cap, it has to be a mass market, right? Low priced EV. And that was the whole idea of starting on the high end. So Cybertruck might be a really nice little marketing trick, but it doesn't really help them with the chance challenges that they have right now in China. And when you think about China as their second largest market, we've talked a lot about this, they have tons of competition here. And this was from Axios. And I think this is really interesting because this was last week. The problem with EVs is they're made in China. And so this quote is just kind of shocking to me. Chinese consumers had their choice of 235 different EVs in the first half of this year and paid on average $35,000 for the battery-powered vehicle. America's had only 51 EVs to choose from and ended up paying an average price of more than $70,000. So those numbers are just staggering to me. And unless Tesla can get to more innovative products at a lower price point in China, I think they're gonna have a real problem. And I think that's gonna weigh on the valuation. And this is going on at a time where there is a massive price war, as you know. And then this is from the information, the world is unexpectedly awash in battery grade lithium and nickel pushing down the prices 76%, 44% respectively. You'd say that's good for them because it's, it's amazing your input cost, but it's just showing you there's a lack of demand right now and an oversupply. And I think that's going to be not great for Tesla as we head into the new year.
1: You mentioned a lot of different things there. Let me pick up on one of them. And that is sort of that ranking. The Chinese consumers had what, more than 250 EVs to yeah, choose 235, from? Yep. 235 to choose from. And it was like 51 here in the United States. To me, actually, that's a point for Tesla because those other 50 here in the U.S. are still so far behind Tesla. And the fact that Tesla's even in the conversation in China just means, and I I always try to compare Tesla to the other, the legacy automakers here, and even the newer guys here, like the Rivians and the Lucids here in the US. And it's just, it's such an advantageous position. And I don't know if Americans are going to buy Chinese EVs. I don't think they are. I could be wrong on that, but Elon Musk and Tesla are going to find a way to bring the costs down, as they have over the years. Cybertruck, yes, but again, you called it sort of this marketing tool, which probably is. So I still have a hard time thinking that Tesla's not in the most advantageous position out of any automaker. On our shore,
0: yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I just say this is that their automotive gross margins look like that of Detroit's right now. So, like, so, so the idea was to get to the point where they are right if now. If you think it's Model an automaker, one of the best selling,
2: which car- I, I car- don't,
0: that is the debate. If you believe in Dojo and you believe in all this other stuff and, and full self driving and everything like that, I just know that all those things, whatever you're kind of imputing for their valuation into the stock right now, I think you have to push them out a few years. I just think that they have their hands full. And the last point I'll just say, If China doesn't work for them. It's a huge problem. I mean, the valuation, I agree with the advantage that they have here in the U.S. and the the charging situation. It really works for them, but at some point, if it's just being valued on their U.S. and their European auto sales, it's going to be a hard time. And the other thing is, look at United Auto Workers, and they have their eyes set on them. You see, I think it's in Denmark and somewhere else in Scandinavia, there's some big issues as it relates to labor there. So these are all headwinds, but China is the biggest headwind to me, and I think, Andrew, Ross Sorkin asked the most important question of Elon last week is that does China have leverage over you? And he was talking about as it relates to SpaceX and Starlink and whatever might go on as it relates to China and Taiwan. And you just think about they do have leverage over Gigafactory in Shanghai and they do have leverage over the potential to shadow ban these products. You know what I mean? From a nationalistic standpoint, you know, we saw that with Apple a little bit. So to me, that's stuff that all has to play out. You guys know where I stand on this.
1: Why aren't we as worried about Apple, right? It's like the risks for Tesla are so great in China. And I almost, Feel like we over-index on them and we under-index on Apple and the China risk there because just like Tesla if China goes away, can't justify its valuation.
0: Yeah, well, I I mean, listen, you know, Apple, you know, for instance, China has become less and less, I guess, important from a manufacturing standpoint, from a supply chain standpoint. I mean, they're manufacturing, as you know, iPhones in India and and other places, you know, for the first time ever.
1: Too tiny. I, I would argue that it's actually, in some ways, you could argue that it's becoming more dependent on China, maybe just different Chinese companies.
0: All right, shifting gears, Uber, a company that you followed from before its IPO, I think it was about four years ago, just the other day, added to the S&P 500, that's going to happen in the next few weeks, the stock had a huge gap higher to new multi-year highs, getting very close to its all-time highs. You know, D, staggeringly near $120 billion market capitalization, the stock has had a huge run just over the last kind of month and a half, I think about 50% or so thoughts here because I know you've talked to Dara about this and you know the whole Barron's cover curse. There's also that S&P 500 inclusion curse. You know, It's great for the company. Sometimes it's not great for the S&P 500 because oftentimes it comes when a stock has had a huge run like this one has had trading at a valuation which is much higher than the average S&P 500 stock. And I would just make the point of that the S&P 500 is a market cap weighted index. So at 120 billion, this is one of the largest right? At a high valuation. And so sometimes there's a disconnect between index buyers who have to buy it and then investors who buy for fundamental reasons who might be basically a bit more hesitant because of valuation and opportunities where, you know, sometimes they don't line up with the run as a company goes into the index.
1: So it's no secret. I've been critical of Uber. And part of the reason that I have been critical of Uber is that I saw it raise so much money in the private markets and just burn through that. And I didn't like when the company would come out and say we're profitable when really they meant adjusted EBITDA profitability. I thought that that was really misleading to an investment audience. In the last few years, though, they have started talking about gap profitability, and I give credit where credit's due. They now have sustainable net income. And even there, I was, you know, I scrutinized it very closely. I said, hold on a second. A lot of that profitability comes from these stakes and these other companies that you have no control over. Finally, last quarter, I said, you know what? That looks more sustainable. It actually has to do with your core business and not some other noise around it. There's just typically a lot of noise around Uber. And I think that Dara's done a really good job in terms of focusing on that core, getting away from the noise, which was really easy to do in the earlier days, whether that be, you know, different companies it was involved with different projects, the scandalous parts of Uber that existed with 1.0. And to sort of see it reach that $100 billion milestone and now inclusion in the s and I think that Dara, but also his predecessors, and this is what I think is important as well. You can think about whatever you want about Uber 1.0, Travis Kalanick, and what happened then, but they still built this really disruptive company that created, I think, what was its highest valuation in the private market? 70 billion, dollars, right? So if you think about that, still more value was created by Uber 1.0 than Uber 2.0. And I'm excited to see what Dara does now, right? Where can they look for other streams of revenue? And it hasn't been the ambition of Uber 1.0, like self-driving cars, creating a super app, but it's been kind of slow and steady. It's been delivering. Maybe they're gonna go into tasks. I still don't know whether that makes it a tech company or you know a utility, like listed taxi company. But again, they have that magic advertising, revenue business, which is sort of the silver bullet for gig economy companies. That's what made Instacart more interesting for its IPO. The fact that it has that business and Uber and DoorDash, even Lyft are building on that. So we'll see if that can bring it to higher multiples.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, to your point, the unique economics for the delivery businesses are not particularly great. And they're never right?
1: going to be good. So I don't just, think that's, that's what we've learned. Yeah.
0: And there is a sense of irony is that, you know, Travis Kalanick got in trouble. I think it was like 10 years ago. He was on stage somewhere and he was talking about, well, the drivers are really our problem. And as we go towards autonomy and, and and the like, you know, that's how this thing is going to work. And think about how much closer they probably are to that. I mean, I think you and I would take the over if we were looking at the over under when we think there's going to be like mass fleets. I know that you've driven in some of them. Um, it just seems like there's a whole host of issues. And on top of the list is sort of regulatory. And I just want to make one point. You know, when you think about just how much gross revenue this company is doing this year, expect to do 37 billion next year, 43 billion. So they're growing like mid teens in revenue. So it's not a hyper growth company anymore right but you know to your point about gap profitability they're expected to two and a half billion dollars in gap net income which is expected to grow i think like 50 percent a year so if the profitability can keep growing right like then this thing really does start to work i mean it is working right now but it has the potential to be one of these kind of mega you know disruptors in, in, in my opinion
1: well let's not forget free cash flow i think the wild card though is still the drivers, you hear still about a lot of dissatisfaction. This is more anecdotal, but I think that there's an issue there and that I still wonder if this is a model, at least the ride-sharing portion of it, that only worked in low interest rates with a lot of capital to basically subsidize the drivers and subsidize the riders. So we'll see how that plays out. And I, in the same way we were talking about the China risk for Tesla and Apple, we can't forget the regulatory risk here in the US and around the world for an Uber because drivers are still sort of carrying that torch and there's still that question over, are they considered independent contractors or employees? And if that changes, the business model just falls apart. We've gone down that road before. The last thing I'll say about Uber, though, when you talk about the revenue growth rate, this is a company, when it IPO'd, its best days were arguably behind it. That high growth, because it waited so long to go public. And you had Travis Kalanick you know, saying <laughs> basically he never wanted to be a public company. I understand, especially being here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, why there is sort of that allergic reaction to being public. But What I also hear, especially being at the intersection of Silicon Valley and Wall Street, right, working at CNBC, it's important we see the value of being a publicly traded company. It's important for the business, too. And that's exactly, I think, what Uber has found out. It's made this painful shift. It traded below its IPO price for so long, and this year really took off. But It had to be a public company to understand what investors wanted and to make that transition to profitability.
0: And and it's not just what investors wanted. There's 52 analysts that cover this stock, 51 rated a buy, one rated a hold, and there's no So, So everybody is on board of this thing. I I have to think that when this thing finally gets added and and the indexers get all their stock in, it's going to be discounting a whole heck of a lot heading into 2024. All right, let's just hit this really quickly. Last thing about being a public company and how a lot of founders, other than the exit, and their ability to kind of get liquid, there's not too many things to look forward to, I think, for most, right? And and we were just citing at the top of the show, this information article talking about the potential IPO class of 2024. And you mentioned a bunch of these companies have been around for a long time. My only thing, and I want to get your take on all this, is like when I look at the list that, that the information article had, we'll put it in the show notes, it's Reddit at 19 years, StubHub, 18 years, Turo, 14 years, Seakeek, 14 years, Xian 12, and a few others there. One of the things that stuck out to me, other than is that they're all like mid to low single digit billions. So if we're going to test this IPO market, I know there was a couple this year, Clavio and Instacart and Arm, you know, and they're all different in sizes and, and variations and the like. I think you probably want to come with a bunch of tech ones that have been around for a while. Investors understand the business models and maybe the valuations are a bit reasonable, at least from a dollar standpoint. They're not eye popping at like 20, 30, 40 billion dollars.
1: Well, let's talk about the elephant in the room that is not on this list. And it's just such a glimpse omission and that's Stripe, right? This company and its founders have no desire to go public. And I think that this is honestly one of the travesties of being a tech reporter from Silicon Valley is that founders, they see going public as this sort of moment where they're a slave to quarterly cycles and the quarterly report. But to me, you know, who covers financial markets for an American mainstream public, it's so sad because they they don't have the opportunity to invest in these disruptive companies when they're the most disruptive. And I don't know what Stripe is going to look like, but it might be another Uber where at best days we're actually in the private markets. Who benefits from that? The VCs and the institutional investors who maybe touch on the public mutual pension funds and mutual funds, but it's such a small allocation that the American public isn't really getting the value created by the most innovative companies in America. So it's too bad, I think.
0: I guess the one difference I'd say about this cycle versus ones in the past is that some of those large mutual fund complex, many of them are investing in these companies earlier. So hopefully, some investors through some of the allocation is tiny no doubt about it so you know at least that they're getting they're they're dipping their toe in the water before they get to the public markets and gives them I guess a little bit of um, a a higher spot on the list to kind of get involved in those allocations but to your point the allocations even with these sorts of size deals are not particularly great so you're gonna have to wait it out all right D we covered a lot of ground go get on your Roku or whatever it is and check out that ROM commerce it's add to heart which I think is a play on words because it's meant to be add to cart um you know so you can buy oh that is
1: so funny yeah
0: well there you go i'm all over it so all right listen
1: are you watching it i don't know it looks i i'm gonna say no no it looks pretty (laughs)
0: cheesy but i don't think it's geared towards me all right d i appreciate you stopping in and we'll see you next week thanks so much sounds good all right stick around for my conversation with marcus collins and joe of human ventures Cross River Bank member FDIC. Welcome back to OK Computer. Really special guest here today, Dr. Marcus Collins, joined by friend of the pod. That was be Joe special Mark guest. Crazy. Yeah, that's why I just want to get <laughs> before I read all of his accolades, Joe, everyone knows you. You are the build partner at Human Ventures. But this introduction to Dr. Marcus Collins, and I'm going to drop the DR if you don't mind here. We're just going to go by Marcus here. He's a professor of marketing at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. He's the author for the culture, the power behind what we buy, what we do, and who we want to be. He's He's a contributor to Forbes. And he was also the head of strategy in New York at Wyden and Kennedy, one of the most famed ad agencies, branding agencies, more than just an ad agency on the planet. Done some of the most influential work, I want to say, of the last 30 or 40 years in some of the biggest brands that actually create culture. So
3: welcome to the pod, Marcus. Thanks so much for having me. I feel like I'm in really good company right now.
0: Well, you're in decent company. There's probably Como's coursing through a couple of our veins right now as we're recording this on Friday morning a little bit. The benefit Um, of a late night. Yeah. So I would love to get a little bit about your background. I read the headlines here and they're all very prolific in a way. And obviously a lot of our listeners know Joe's background. And so it's fitting that we're here to talk about Culture. We're talking about the influence just on media and, and the like here. How did you get here, man? Because, like, a lot of really interesting stuff, and not just somebody who advises big brands, but you're also teaching it, you're writing about it, and it seems like you've created a lane for yourself in this space.
3: It's been a long and windy road. I started off uh, as an engineer because I've Born and raised in Detroit, did well in math and science, and in the 90s, if you did well in math and science and you were black, you're going to be an engineer. So that's what I did. Went to engineering, realized I didn't want to do that, told my parents I didn't want to do that, and they said they didn't care, you finished finish that engineering degree. Went to engineering, finished my degree and went to the music industry, much to their chagrin, realized the music industry kind of sucks, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. So I went back to get my MBA, then went to go work at Apple did partner marketing iTunes, met Matthew Knowles, who has a daughter named Beyonce. You guys heard of her before? <laughs> and he said, let me get this straight. You're an engineer, you started a music company, you have an MBA, you worked at iTunes, and you're black? You don't exist, you're a unicorn, you're not real. And they go, no, I'm real. He says, you should run digital strategy for Beyonce and say, yeah, I should totally do that. Oh wow. So then I worked in the music industry under her, her brand for a while, then went into advertising. And that's really where I started to open up my aperture about the world, that ads weren't about this marketing communications. They were vehicles that marketers use to get people to adopt behavior. And I realized in that moment, I knew nothing about human behavior. So I started studying the behavioral sciences. And as I learned more about anthropology, psychology, sociology, my work got better. As I invested myself in the academic world, the practice world got better. And that became the biggest breakthrough for me. One foot in academia as a professor and one foot in practice as an advertiser. And that's where I sit today. Um, I wrote a book to capture the perspective and
0: the learnings to help people leverage that power too. The book, and just, you know, we have a little habit here on the pod here. We do giveaways for authors here. So the first hundred folks, okay, who leave a review for OK Computer in your favorite podcast store, you know what to do. You take a screenshot of it and you email it to contact at risk reversal. And Amanda is going to send you a book, Dr. Marcus Collins' book. So please do that because it's a great read here. Joe, talk to me a little bit about your intersection with Marcus, because a lot of things that he's just talked about. I know it's very integral to your career as you made your way through the ad business and then obviously advising companies, investing companies. And that's one of the things I think at Human, and I know this from personal experience, like you guys are really good at as far as working with companies and working with entrepreneurs and the like.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it's funny because I wanted to go into philosophy in college, but I was at a business school. And so the closest thing to philosophy was economics because it's the <laughs> it's why people behave the way they do. And, right. and I think that what's so interesting about what Marcus is saying is that I think companies don't think early enough on about what their brand is going to be. Like, and I think we can talk a lot about this macro trend of this over investment in lower funnel, direct response marketing. But culturally, a brand is an expectation. And if you don't start to form that early, you don't have value like you can't imagine like a nike growing up today when companies are starting now like the idea of how you create culture is it's almost impossible to to imagine like, you don't know where to buy it tv isn't like it used to be TikTok tock algorithms are, you're trying to hack into like, fame lasts for a second and so the game has changed entirely and that's why this is so interesting it's funny in the music business it sounds like that honestly content is being created right to work
0: well on whatever algorithm is doing that sort of suggestion in a way and i guess Like Marcus, I'm curious like how you think about this because when you talk about, Joe, like early stage companies that come up with an idea, a product or service or something like that and you think about branding, does culture have to be created within the way a company operates, the way they think about the product or the service and then being projected outwardly because it's something that's authentic to that company or that that product or service? I think it's wise to first start with what do we mean by culture? Yeah.
3: Because culture is one of those words that we often use but seldom fully understand, right? Let's get our ideas out into culture What's happening in culture? You have a foosball table in the kitchen. We have a great culture here. Yeah. Culture, 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 culture,
0: is really good for culture <laughs> and startups, right? Did I say that wrong? Kombucha? Kombucha. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what <laughs> you're saying, and I think I got yeah, it. That. It's so far into my culture. But if you ask five
3: people to define culture, you get 55 different answers. And that's a problem because there is no external force more influential to human behavior than culture, full stop. But if we don't have a good Rosetta Stone to define it, then we can never fully harness its power. So what is culture? I think about it from a sociological lens, particularly Emil Durkheim, one of the founding fathers of sociology. He talks about culture as a system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and govern what people like us do. It's like a system of systems that's anchored in our identity with all the complexity that our identities have, right, and all of its intersectionality. And because of who we are, we see the world a certain way, a shared worldview. That's why for some, a cow is leather, for others, it's deity, and for some, it's dinner. Which one is it? It's all those things, depending on who you are. And because of who we are, we see the world a certain way, and then we navigate the world a certain way. I'm a Collins. We believe family and church come first. Therefore, Sunday mornings, I'm in the church sanctuary, or I get a passive aggressive call from my mother that afternoon. How was your morning, Marcus? that she gets down. And it's not like there's a law saying that I must go to church, but it's just what we do. So because of who we are, we see the world a certain way, then we navigate the world a certain way, and then we express ourselves through shared work. Literature, film, music, movies, brands and branded products become ways by which we signal who we are. They're outward expressions of inward beliefs. With that as the working construct, right? this system of system, the alchemy of which makes up our culture, what does that mean for brands, for companies? The idea is that companies put things in the world as exogenous shocks to the system, that people respond to and go, whoa, what was that? Joe, what do you think? And then as we enter discourse, we decide, do people like us do something like this? And as a result, we do it. We buy it. We drive it. We wear it. We watch it. We talk about it. We
2: take action because that is what's normal for us. But this is the point. He says it so much more eloquently than I ever can. But this is the. But I want to drive this home on what it means for brands in a world where we don't have shared narratives. Where you see something on Instagram, you don't know if I've seen that on Instagram. So then, how can you buy it and signal anything to me? So the number of shared experiences. It's not just that you and I could have seen the same ad, but I don't know if we've seen the same ad. So
3: that's why, or know what you think about that yeah, ad either.
2: Or, oh yeah, or, or know whether. And so if we can't get to those things, like that is when a brand has a shared. Expectation, and I know that other people believe that, and then it has value. That's right? right. And that is the thing that, if you can break through on that, like it is incredibly valuable. I try to work with founders constantly to start to think about brand a little bit differently. Because again, I think I've said this here before, but I just can't I can't get over it. Enough. Google and Facebook and Amazon and all the retail media have said to the world, if you can't measure it, don't buy it. Yeah. Which makes me think that everything that's hard or impossible to measure is wildly undervalued. But you have to be comfortable with the fact that you don't know how to measure the thing. That drives people crazy. One thousand
3: percent. I mean, which I think is actually irresponsible to say if you can't measure it, it's not real. I love My wife, can I measure the love I have for my wife? (laughs) (laughs) A a, a couple times a year, at least. Yeah, but it's hard to measure it. However, because of what I feel, the love I have, I behave accordingly. So the idea is to understand the antecedent, which is culture, so we can measure the byproduct, which is behavior, right? And consumption is a cultural act what we wear, what we go, how we style our hair, if you have it, what Mm -hmm. you drive, where you went to school who you marry, if you marry, where you vacation, what you eat, how you bury the dead. These things are all byproducts of our cultural subscription. Culture is the biggest cheat code in business full stop. Yes. But to Joe's point, it's something that we don't pay attention to because we can't define it, we don't understand it, we can't measure it. But if we can define it as a convention of expectations, of things that people like us do, then we can then measure what do people do? right? What do they buy? What do they drink? What do they watch? What are they doing? That's what we're in the
0: business of as marketers, getting people to adopt behavior. Have all these delivery mechanisms, right, for brands to kind of reach consumers, have they made a lot of... that you just said really inauthentic. You know, you know what I'm saying. That's the one thing. It's like just influencer marketing. You know? yeah. it, it, it seems yeah, so ephemeral in a way, right? But it, when you're looking at it on your three and a half inch screen, and you've already been transfixed for 40 minutes, you know what I mean? Doom scrolling or whatever the heck it is that you're doing. There's a power to that, but I can't think a year from now. 90% of those influencers that might have piqued your interest in something, you will not gun to your head. You will not re- be able to remember them. The brand in which you, know, you know what I mean. And I want to bring it back a little bit. To so Wyden & Kennedy, I come from a, a family in the advertising business, my brother and my sister, and this was always like this company that was like literally creating magic. You know what I mean? Like every major brand over the last 30 years like that had real cultural impact, yeah. I think, at least here in the US that I can speak to. I remember that Be Like Mike, the, the Gatorade commercial, obviously Nike. Um, just uh, do um, it. Yeah, yep. the just do it. It's just amazing. So talk to me a little bit about that yeah. because I, I wonder, Joe, also, and, and I'd love for your, your take on this after, do you see brands having that ability to create those sorts of campaigns anymore? Because at the top of my head, I can't think of any
3: right. 1,000%. I would say brands and brand marketers like Wyden Kennedy, for instance, they're really good at preaching the gospel. So what do I mean by that? So if the brand knows what it believes, how it sees the world, its cultural characteristics that make up its worldview, it then finds people who see the world similarly who share the same conventions, the same expectations. For Nike, to Joe's point, Nike believes that every human body is an athlete. Big, small, short, tall, we're all athletes. And the only thing keeping us from realizing our best athletic self is us. So what does Nike tell the world? Just do it. Who is Nike targeting? Athletes, mm-hmm. right? They talk to them in very specific ways. They talk to runners one way, swimmers another way, fencers, I don't know about thought of fencers, basketball players another way. They talk to them in very bespoke ways, but collectively they make up the congregation of athletes. And what marketers, particularly people like Wine Kennedy and, and agencies like that, what they do is they preach the gospel to those people and they go, finally, someone said it. Finally, someone said it, then they use the brand to communicate their identity. And this is why the social networking platforms of the day, the TikToks of the world, the the Instagrams of the world are so powerful because they facilitate the propagation of culture. That I take this ad, I take this brand, branded product, and then I use it as identity mark as a way of signaling who I am. And it creates network effects among people like us because we have a shared expectation of the brand and the brand has shared meaning. So the best brands at their very best, they don't create ads, they create cultural production. They create the expression of how we see the world, and we use the brand as a badge of identity to signal
2: our personhood. There's two parts to this that I think are interesting for brands, which is the brand facilitates community in some ways because it gives me something, again, back to the shared narrative, something to talk about. The other thing, though, is because a brand is an expectation, you have the actual utility of the product. I know Nike has put a lot of science into those shoes. I believe them. That is why when when a brand lets you down, so Samsung, when the phones were catching on fire, the reason why that mattered was because samsung had a brand there was an expectation of excellence from the brand and they had to earn that back again right the reason why you don't have a new phone company pop up overnight and like the reason why tesla has had this time to get in is because you don't have the years of trust in what the brand can do and so that is the thing that i think you look at, and I've pointed this out too, but Bernard Arnault and Jeff Bezos, two richest people on planet Earth at one point, your margin is my opportunity and the highest margin brands in the world, right? Mm. Look at the barbell that, yeah, of what's yeah, occurred. Right, yeah. If you are reliant, and this this goes for small companies and startups too, if you are reliant on the platforms, eventually they eat your margin. And it's not their fault. They're not being evil. What, what's the allegory of the scorpion and the alligator? And he goes across and he stings them. He's, it's in my nature. I'm <laughs> a scorpion. What do you expect? I mean, what do you want? Like, <laughs> yeah. I did a conversation the other day and someone was like, oh, the ad market, they think it's going to be weak next year. I'm like, I don't know. I I think Facebook, Google, Amazon and and the other platforms are going to grow at 20, 30 percent. If they said that their numbers are coming down, they've gotten to a level at which they have inserted themselves in the flow of commerce. That's right. Like a 20% vig on the on the US commerce is a pretty good business <laughs> to be in. But none of that is culture creating. All of that is demand sorting. So, how do you break free of that? And those those are the ones that get outsized returns for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea of facilitating culture becomes a place
3: where I want to be because what people decide is acceptable for people like them. They buy. I love uh, Taylor Swift as an example. Yeah. Who doesn't love Taylor Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we the Swifties in the house. Yeah. Right. <laughs> she... As an artist, she has transcended what it means to be an artist. She stands for something. She represents something. She signifies something. And people who see the world the way they do, they are part of the community of Swifties. They consume as a cultural act. And then those people go tell other people. I thought it was the coolest thing about when she showed up at the Chiefs game is that everyone was like, oh, it's the Taylor effect. That, like, she showed up, so everyone started watching and they started buying jerseys. But what was interesting is that she wasn't wearing a jersey that game. She wasn't. But people went and bought the jerseys because they themselves were negotiating, constructing what people like them ought to do. And these platforms enable the discourse that drives commerce. It's through the conversations that we have with people like us that we decide what people like us do.
2: Yeah, no. When you, I don't know, uh, Christy went to my wife went to a one of the concerts with her sister, and they go and there's merch that you can only buy at the concert. You cannot buy that That's merch right. unless you were at the concert. So therefore, buying the merch is a signal to everyone that you went to the concert, That's and right. that the line's a mile long. It's next level genius marketing, but it should be a study in why we seek these things out. And and the Taylor Swift effect in particular allows all sorts of levels of fandom, right? It allows people to go super deep into like analyzing, and it also allows people to be super light and just sing along because they know the song on the radio one of my favorite things i learned about why we like music is we get a dopamine hit when we predict the core like you and you can predict the chorus or like you predict you're predicting the next note your brain loves that so what did i say before brands are shared expectations so when we all have the shared expectation we just so much enjoy being around other people like when that is occurring we're social animals by nature right and the act of being in
3: community is just an act of being human and our consumption becomes ways by which we make our culture material And doing so creates an unbelievable opportunity for brands who understand the cultural characteristics of people. So like the brands aren't creating culture as much they are contributing to it. And that contribution acts as an invitation to be a part of the community, to be a part of the discourse that makes the community real. And that requires understanding community and understanding people. So there's
0: one person on the planet who's turning almost everything that the two of you guys just said on its head. Okay. And it's not Taylor Swift because I think she's leveraging everything that you talked yeah. about. <laughs> okay. But it's Elon Musk. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think this is really topical, right? Because so Elon Musk was with Andrew Ross Sorkin at the Dilbert conference the other day. So there's two things going on here. Okay. So it's Twitter which is I think we've just discussed as one of these kind of delivery mechanisms for brands and communication and community creating and culture creating. So he owns that. Then if you are a brand that wants to advertise on these sorts of platforms, some have chosen not to for a whole host of reasons. We're we're not going to get into that stuff. But the guy who owns the platform basically said, fuck you. Literally. literally. (laughs) That's what he said. He said, fuck you. And that will only encourage certain behavior by some of the brands that have chosen not to advertise on his platform, but it will also encourage folks who really love that, like that part of what he's doing, but it's very bifurcated. It's not something it's going to, and it's going to go, it's going to swing one way or the other. And in the same breath, he actually said the boycotts, which I am actually encouraging by my behavior right now, have the risk of bankrupting the company and then it'll be their fault. Again, we don't have to debate that, but talk to me a little bit about that because I'm sure you are a professor. You're going to spend a lot of time in your lectures talking about this because it's really, I think it's interesting how this ends up breaking for a guy who thinks there are no checks on him, yeah. that he can do whatever he wants. He's broken lots of rules and gotten away with it, but he's also done some you know fantastic things along the way. So I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, well, I mean, he's a case study
3: for community, both how you you build one, how you destroy one. He literally has destroyed what was a community of people, a Black Twitter on, on Twitter, have exited to go to Spill, for instance, just yeah. completely eroded the value there. Where's, However, where's Bald Twitter, guys? But he has continued to build the or facilitate the community that is surrounded around him. Right? It's not a far fetch from what we've seen with Donald Trump. Yeah. Not a far fetch from what we've seen from Kanye West even, right? These figures have facilitated community around their personhood
0: by dissenting from what is normal. But it's really narcissistic. So I think you could almost put it in such a small bucket though. Uh, like we, you just mentioned two very big figures in the world, Donald Trump and Elon Musk. But when you really think about the folks that they are commanding like right now, they're not that marketable right now because unless you're selling guns and gold and, and yeah. survival
2: but, kits and stuff like that, but, you know, that's it. We'll take out the Elon of it all and think about the fact that his personality and the cult of personality Moved the stock market. Like Tesla should not have been worth what it was worth. But loyalists, like that, you got to think of, talk about a brand, right? Now, you could argue that right now he's destroying that. uh, And we're going to get to that. I think that that was the next part of this conversation. But but, but I actually, but if we ignore the bad for just a second, every startup founder is a cult leader to some extent. You always talk about the t shirt test. Would you wear the brand on on the front of your t shirt? How many startups do you see where people will wear the brand on the front of their t shirt, right? And it it doesn't, it's not necessarily a brand, it's not necessarily, it's not an apparel brand. Why are they wearing it? They love where they work. They love it's a receipt they, of identity. Yeah, that goes away when you get to a large corporate, right? right. It's very rare you see a large corporation where you you still want to wear the, the the brand on your shirt. There is this thing that when you're starting a company and you're building a company, you're saying it's the gospel, like you were talking yep. about. Here's what we believe. We believe we can change the world. We just need to do this. We believe we can do this. We just need That's to right. do that. Oh, I just need to raise some money. Okay, I just need to hire some engineers. I just and then you just need to do it. and then one day it becomes real, right? Or it doesn't, and you're we work. Most of them don't <laughs> become real.
3: Though. The people who are around that table, the four folks they are making no money, actually losing money, mm-hmm. being
0: there. They're there because they believe. I, like, I think they're there because it's free shirts and kombucha. I really do in a way. Yeah. And I think that's something that's so yeah. unique to this kind of last 10 years or so in, in, in the U.S. economy. And Joe, you spent a lot of time overseas and I'm sure mm. you yeah. deal with a lot of brands overseas. Very different entrepreneurial cultures, wouldn't you say so? Sure. I, mean, yeah. I, I don't know. It might be unique But I think to by
3: and large, they're there because they believe in something. And that's the gravitational force that brings them together. And the notion is that when you're able to continue to reverberate that belief throughout the company, you can grow the company. I mean, I, I used to work at Apple. We would call that a cult. We would say they have right. a cult-like following. Yeah, That's because the conventions and expectations of what it means to
2: be a part of that community is very salient. And uh, I will now be an armchair, totally unqualified social anthropologist here and say, but we also have a, not only just a loneliness epidemic, but we, like, we've fractured communities, right? And work, and I thought about this a lot when everyone's, like, oh, we're never going back to the office. Everything's going to be remote work is. Work isn't just where you sat nine to five on a computer. It's where you talked to people that weren't your family. It's where you met Jim. friends. It's where you shared the stories from the football game over the weekend at uh, Travis Kelsey's Dayton Taylor Swift. Like, this idea of getting humans mashed up and, and and aligned on a problem to go solve together is more about getting people together. And we don't have a lot of that in other yeah. places. So yes, there's a foosball table. We have culture. I think for some people, it really does become that. And, and it, that's an important part of life.
3: Yeah. There's a scholar named uh, Michelle Mephisoli refers to this as neo-tribes.
2: See, that I, I, I know if, if I went with the low-grade armchair, <laughs> then we'd have yeah. a professional to tell yeah. me I was... You know, <laughs> the, you know <laughs> anthropologists <laughs> would
3: argue that we're meant to be in communities, small <laughs> tribes, small communities. And thanks to the Industrial Revolution, we found ourselves in these big metropolises, these big cities working to, to make capital. And what we did was we found other people who were like ourselves. We heard ideas that never heard that before. That's interesting. We adopted new identities through our consumption, then we found more communities. These outlets, they aren't just for their functional service. They're about their communal drive of what it means to be human. These things bring us together. So whether you are a part of the tribe of Elon Musk or you're the tribe of athletes, these things become ways by which we're able to demarcate our identity who we are and where we fit into this world. And that's really what we're after is finding meaning and what is this mess of experiences in the world. And as we hold on to these things, as we consume, as we bump into people, we find who we are and who people like us are in our
0: minds. That means safety and survival. So the next part of this is Tesla, because I think this is going to be absolutely a fascinating case study. OK. Yeah. And so this goes back to that conversation with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Elon Musk. And he was talking about how he basically Elon has single handed candidly pulled forward the EV adoption and and the creation of this industry in a world that really wasn't, and you're a Detroit guy, think about how resistant Detroit was for so long. It's a $100 billion revenue company. Yeah, It's a $700 billion market cap company. It's being valued at, you've heard all this stuff. I I think its market cap is greater than all of the other autos in the world combined, Mm -hmm. okay, when you think about that, okay? So people are buying in, not just the people who work there, but consumers have bought into something, okay? Yeah. So now the individual who is solely representative of this brand, they don't advertise, okay? And he goes out of his way to talk about this. They don't advertise. Well,
2: they, 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 no, they advertise a ton. He is just, he is the advertiser. That's right. right. Like, right. Like he, he and is. we are he, the advertiser. Right? We're doing right. it. Well, yeah.
0: So it started out with people yeah. who cared about the environment, right? Yeah. And then it's actually, it, over the last couple of years, it's switched over. So EV adoption has slowed, right? And, and maybe the incentives, other than some tax incentives, have, have like, like they just don't exist anymore. And then a lot of folks are actually repelled by him and his behavior. We were talking about this the other night on Fast Money, and Melissa looked at me and I said, the greatest trick, the devil, insert Elon, ever... like Devil's the greatest, advocate. The, no, right? the, no, 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 yeah. the, well, the usual stuff. So I said... The, 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 oh, that's right. right, yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. So, that's right. Right, right, right. so the, the, the greatest trick, the devil, Ever pulled, insert Elon there, okay, was convincing the people who didn't want to buy EVs that they should buy EVs. That's what's going on with Cybertruck right now. Think about the people. They are the cult followers, they are the true believers. They are in his tribe. And that tribe, I believe, is getting smaller and smaller. They're the ones who were lined up in Austin to get these Cybertrucks. They're not EV buyers. They don't care about the environment, they're all in it for him. So talk to me a little bit about that because at a time where demand has dropped off, their profitability making these cars has dropped off dramatically. The competition is dialed up. Geopolitical issues are huge for them. If you think about it, Andrew Ross Sorkin asked the question, does China have leverage over you? Your second largest factory is in Shanghai. You rely on manufacturing, consumption, so they're consumers. Access to rare earth materials. Okay, so if you were to go turn on Starlink somewhere that they don't want it turned on, maybe Taiwan could they shut you down? So all of that stuff—it's just a bundle of conflicts of interest—and yet it seems like the true buyer for his products are getting narrower and narrower. And I'm just like, again, this is fascinating to me. I don't have the answer. I wish I
3: did too. I think (laughs) I don't
2: think there's. (laughs) But you know,
3: I think what happens is that because, to Joe's point, he is the marketing for the brand. When he does things that are unsavory with the population, people who were in the boat, they go, ooh, now consuming means that I'm in compliance with him, that I agree, and therefore they go, no thanks. It's sort of like when Nike partnered with Colin Kaepernick for the ad, people started burning their Nikes as a way of signaling, that is not my identity, right? They're they're trying to push against that. But the people who believe that was the right move, they bought two pair of Nikes, right? So these things are all about our consumption process as a way to signal who we are.
2: Yeah, and, and taking it away from Tesla, just any startup, you gave the example that Tesla was valued as you know, more than all the other, how many startups have crazy valuations because the investors believe in the future, like they're gonna grow into that valuation. Yeah. They're just not They're just not traded the same way. Like we, we make investments in companies like that we value them at tens of millions, of hundreds of millions of dollars and yet they're not profitable yet, yeah. right? Because like, we believe. Because Yeah, because we believe and, and like, that's what it takes to get there. Now, then at some point it has to go from belief to other people believing to them having customers. I didn't think it was novel that we invest in companies that make a product and then sell it for more than it costs to make it, but that seems to be a novel investing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Behavior is driven
3: by belief. Everything starts with what we believe. Like, our culture is anchored in our identity. Because of our identity, we see the world a certain way. And we consume because either the cow is leather or dinner or a deity. And our behaviors are byproducts of it. They're outward expressions of inward beliefs. Is We see it in from it, as we invest. We see it in, as we consume. We see it in, as we build companies. Belief is just is such an unbelievable driver into how we see the world and how we navigate the world. And for companies to understand that, it's against the biggest cheat code they I'd have. Be,
2: I'd be interested in your view on agencies going forward. What do the agencies look like? Because for me, and I'll set this up because leading the witness, because I've been thinking about this <laughs> a ton, but there's the media buying side yep. of the agency, right? And then we've just talked about how the platforms are going. And then there's the creative side of the That's agencies, right. right? And the media buying is getting more and more data driven. It's less art, more science, or, yep. or, or so they would say, right? And then the creative side is, okay, we can do a great creative campaign, but how is it getting out there? It was supposed right. to be at the media side. So yeah. if you ever go to Can Lions, like half of the stuff is now ad tech, right? Because, like, the delivery is more complicated That's than right. making great art. That's right. So wh- where do you think this yeah. goes?
3: So I think the industry is has overinvested on the real estate media. Um, and we've used data to help us pinpoint what we should populate that media with, the creative side. Uh, but we missed the thing that we've been talking about that actually drives behavior, which is the cultural side. And when agencies say we focus on culture, they don't know how to define it. So therefore, they can't really show where culture drives commerce. So those companies end up going back to focusing on value propositions. And you notice everything we've been talking about, Nutbit was about my razor sharper, my battery lasts longer, my car goes faster, or my shampoo will get you late. Like none mm-hmm. of this stuff <laughs> without the value proposition that most of the advertising drives to. I want to try
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to try your shampoo. But yeah, it's going it to cost our hair. Yeah. I think. <laughs> it yeah, sounds like say. it does it's, a lot of interesting <laughs> things here. Listen, th- this was like such a great conversation. Joe and I have talked offline about some of the sort of stuff And he's like, I got the guy for you to meet. And it was Dr. Marcus Collins. You are the author of For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. And listen, people, if you're listening right now and you want to read that book, you know what to do. Leave a review in your favorite podcast store. We're going to send you one. Marcus, it was so great to talk to you. I really hope that you come back. And I, listen, anytime there's something going on like happened this past week, I think it's a really fascinating case study with what Elon and really like him doing what he wants to do uh, as it relates to his brand and not particularly concerned mm-hmm. um, about how consumers feel about it. And I think the jury's still out how this one plays out. But your thoughts on this was really fascinating. Joe, obviously, as always, thank you for being here. Thank you for the introduction. And let's do it again soon, guys. Awesome. Let's do Thanks. it. Thanks. Thanks for having us.